This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. There's still no move by the governing Ford PCs to mandate COVID vaccination for all healthcare workers in Ontario. The question remains. Should this unprecedented health crisis and the dangers associated with it outweigh the constitutional rights of Canadians when it comes to getting the shot? Also, if other jurisdictions are already doing this, what's stopping our political leaders from making the decision? And then there's the issue of privacy. Healthcare workers like doctors and nurses are not required to be transparent about whether or not they've been vaccinated due to Ontario privacy laws. It's a reality that's been leaving medical patients, especially those who are immunocompromised, feeling vulnerable and unsafe. While filling in for Libya on Holiday Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravit, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. I have no way I have no way of understanding this, Bob. I have no way of understanding it. I don't understand what a constitutional right is that would prevent this from happening if you want to work as a, in, in uh, healthcare. It's one thing to say you have the right not to be vaccinated and therefore not be hauled off to jail. You have a civil right as a Canadian citizen uh, to decline to be vaccinated and then not suffer punishment uh, in, in the law. But it's quite a different matter to say you have the right not to be vaccinated and then work at any occupation you choose, even if some of those occupations make it necessary for you to be vaccinated. It's a perfectly reasonable condition of employment, and it's a complete mystery to me why this is even an issue. Bill? David's absolutely uh, right, and CARP members don't understand why we have rules in all other areas, but not in this one when it concerns our loved ones. Where is our concern that was there a year ago when we were so concerned about keeping our loved ones safe in long-term care facilities and in hospitals where they they were in contact with other people from the community? Now we're just talking about the, the, the workers and there's no reason at all. It, it's it's unbelievable to many. In fact, many of the CARP members I've talked to didn't believe that was happening. They thought I was wrong when I told them there was no uh, necessity that people be vac- vaccinated when they're working in those facilities. Bill, David, if you both don't understand it and you're left scratching your head, David, let's go back to you then. Why do you think it is that it's not mandatory? Well, obviously, the, the reason is that the government is holding on to some notion of privacy issues and uh, constitutional issues. They've, they've offered a rationale. Uh, they haven't said, well, we're not going to do it because we just feel like it. They've quoted these issues. I'm also, but I also must say, and I, I'd like to hear what Bill thinks, I don't even understand the privacy concern because to reveal that you've had the vaccine 
is not to disclose any of your other health information. All, you, all you're knowing is that this particular worker has received the vaccine. Now, if that worker had gotten injured, let's say, and showed up one day at my home or at the uh, hospital with uh, three stitches in her arm because she cut herself accidentally or with a cast because she fractured her wrist, is that is that an invasion of privacy? Now I know something about her that she fractured her wrist and she's wearing a cast. Uh, it doesn't disclose any of her other private health information. It doesn't disclose what medical conditions she's had, uh, what treatment she's had over the years. I know nothing about her or him other than that they've received the vaccine. And so I don't even understand why it's a violation of privacy, frankly. Bill? Well, David, I think you're right. It's not a violation of privacy. And we also, uh, TARP believes that one of the other problems, this just shows uh, even more strongly why we need more national control over issues such as this, to have uh, the various provinces, even sections within those provinces, being able to make this deci- make this decision that that affects everybody across the country. On one hand, we want to open up the country and allow people to travel from one province to, to the other. On the other hand, we're allowing provinces to make these life and death uh, decisions. It's time the uh, federal government got the guts to make some decisions and make and force them on everyone else when it's in the general public uh, best uh, best interests. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. It was a week ago yesterday Canada's Chief Public Health Officer warned Canada might possibly be at the start of a Delta variant-driven fourth wave. And with that warning, Dr. Teresa Tam wants to see an increase in double vaccination rates to at least 80%. She says it's crucial to build up protection before we start to gather again in schools, colleges, universities, and workplaces. Dr. Tam also says we need to take a cautious approach to relaxing public health measures and remain vigilant and responsive to signs of resurgence. I was joined on Monday by epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at Ryerson University School of Occupational and Public Health to discuss. But first, Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, warns that thousands of doses of Moderna vaccine could go to waste because their refrigerator life is only a month. Well, there are tens of thousands that could potentially be disposed of uh, starting on August 6th, which is of course, the worst nightmare for any healthcare provider. And uh, we are doing everything we can to try to move these doses into arms before that uh, happens, including looking at uh, promoting this on social media, uh, public health experts uh, going out talking about the value of getting what's offered to you, be it uh, Pfizer or Moderna, and uh, talking about interchangeability, the mixing of the doses. But we know there are challenges here with concerns with respect to what constitutes fully vaccinated when you travel. We've seen people and heard about people being turned away, certain Caribbean islands, Royal Caribbean cruises, and I think that is leading to some hesitation around getting Moderna, uh, as well as the brand preference that we've uh, experienced over the course of the rollout. What's the cutoff in terms of the possibility for some of these doses to go elsewhere, or is it all or nothing? We either 
get as many into as many arms as we can, and whatever we don't is uh, is pitched. Well, the complicating factor here is the fact that they are only good for 30 days in a fridge. So once the vaccine arrives in a thawed state to a pharmacy or to a primary care physician's office, we have a 30-day window before we have to dispose of them, even though they expire in a, in a frozen state in December. So there is two different types of wastage. And in this case, uh, we're almost up on the 30 days. So in order to share vaccines with other countries, we would need to extract them from the individual locations, which is time-consuming, and there's very few uh, distributors that have the license to do that. Then they would need to inspect each of the vials to make sure they're not spoiled, and that's a QA process that takes time. And then you would need, of course, to ship them out. So the time to share vaccines is actually before they're distributed to the pharmacies when they're still in a frozen state. And the federal government is doing that with Moderna and with uh, AZ uh, vaccines now. What we're recommending is rather than throw these out, let's look at the potential of third doses for people who may be immunocompromised, who are high risk uh, populations with comorbidities or seniors where, you know, we know there's some data to support a third shot. We know boosters are probably a reality at some point. Um, And I think this would be a much better use of the vaccine than, of course, disposing of them. And what about... The warning, we could be looking at a potential fourth wave if we don't get many more people uh, fully vaccinated and if we're not uh, careful with uh, with the measures and how quickly the remaining ones uh, are dealt with. Uh, Bob, I was looking to the uh, left and to the right, the east to the west and to the south, and almost all those countries have seen or are growing into a fourth wave of some kind. We can beat this one. The numbers will go up. There's not much doubt about it. But uh, let's. Uh, I think. I think we can. We can keep the numbers very low if we take uh, take those steps that we we really need. In other words, if the vaccination rate continues to increase, because we're now among the top half a dozen countries in the world. We, I wouldn't have thought we would have reached that back six months ago, but we've done very well on that. We still need to bring our double vax numbers up quite a long way. And now with the new variant, it's got to be between eighty and eighty-five percent vaccinated uh, and uh, and so vaccination is one lockdown we don't want to do let's let's keep that as the very last thing uh, on anybody's mind and the third one of course is mitigation that's your masking and distancing so we'll keep the masking and distancing going to try and stop the transfer and we'll keep the vaccination going upwards and we will stop the uh, the fourth wave growing into anything that uh, gets horrible Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at Ryerson University School of Occupational and Public Health. And before him, Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Coming up after the break, the unofficial countdown to a federal election. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
As we await Justin Trudeau's visit to the Governor General in anticipation of a federal election, a new Leger poll suggests his governing liberals are in the lead in voter support, but not way out ahead. If an election were held now, 29% of those surveyed say they would vote liberal, 24% would vote conservative, 16% NDP, 4% green. But of decided voters, 36% would cast ballots for the liberals, 29% for the conservatives, 20% for the NDP. Now, as for the leaders themselves, 27% of respondents say Justin Trudeau's the best prime minister, with 19% in favor of Jugmeet Singh, and just 11% say Aaron O'Toole would make the best PM. While filling in for Libby, Jane Brown was joined by our strategy panelists with their thoughts around the mindset of voters. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister. It's been uh, discussed for some time. Trudeau is suggesting this is the time to go, obviously, because he's not. he says he's not getting as much cooperation to get things through the House, but obviously it's because the pollings are strong. He's got to time this thing at a, you know, before uh, a fourth wave were to occur, for example. What may happen come the fall, kids back to school and other things. Uh, so I can appreciate him wanting to go back. The polls got have him winning a majority. And, uh, yeah, so he's putting out a lot of goodies out there. He's trying to establish a ballot question. He's trying to differentiate himself, you know, with the carbon tax and social programs that he's promising. He's got to also figure out how to make the economy work. And uh, the GG looks like she's going to support uh, the, the issue, obviously, because, you know, precedents would suggest she wouldn't. And uh, Jagmeet Singh may argue a fixed election should be the one, but, you know, they're, they're saying that uh, the confidence... Uh, Although he says it exists, uh, Trudeau will say it doesn't, and doesn't preclude regardless uh, of Trudeau calling the early election. But, Jane, I, I don't know. I, 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 there's a lot of people I hear don't want the election regardless, but uh, I, I get why the Liberals are going to try to do it. Karen, what do you make of the survey? Well, I, I think that uh, it is interesting in that the, the Liberals have been governing as if they have a majority, really, and um, and they haven't had a majority. So, you know, on the one hand, I think it's it's not a terrible idea to go to the polls to either solidify that they have a majority, or if they don't get a majority, then they they actually do need to be more. Um, I I think uh, you know, reaching out a little bit more to the other parties for some consensus building. There was a moment in time during the pandemic where the government just had to make decisions, and I think that Parliament gave a lot of leeway for that to happen. Credit to the Parliament is due there. Uh, there's some other things that I think that the Liberals may have overstretched and may have. Uh, you know, taken some liberties that weren't theirs to take. And I think that the opposition was right to push back a little bit on that. So I, I don't think it's terrible to have an election right now. I think there's some things that could certainly work against the Liberals. Like if there is a fourth wave before the election results are in, I think that that could work against the Liberals. But I, I do think that, that one interesting statistic that sticks out for me is that the Conservative Party is more popular than the leader. Mm. And so that demonstrates to me that um, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, Aaron O'Toole needs to figure that out because there, there's something holding him back um, as a leader of the party. And, um, and you know, and conversely, the, the Liberal Party is slightly more popular than Justin Trudeau. So I, I think that there is, um, you know, 
there's some things that are going on there that uh, need to be better understood. John, your overall reaction to this survey and where voters' minds are at right now? The fact of the matter is, the Liberals will have to go to the Governor General and actually cause the election. And that's going to be a problem because Canadians are thinking, do we really need an election? Like, what, what is, you know, Charles talked about a ballot question. The fact that the Liberals have to find or try to, try to get a ballot question uh, created it speaks volumes of the fact that they sh- there shouldn't be an election, that they're purely going because they think that there's a window of opportunity, given the polls, that they could win a majority government, which obviously would, would be their, their favorable way of governing versus a, uh, versus a minority government. But what I would say, too, though, Jane, is the fact that the NDP don't want an election and have gone so far as to send a letter to the governor general suggesting that she not, you know, accept the, the, the writ that, that the government wants to have, it gives me an indication that the government could continue to govern. The NDP will p- p- continue to support every legislation that this government has well beyond, you know, 2022, which means that, you know, we'll have a better understanding of what, where this pandemic is, because, of course, now we're talking about this fourth, fourth wave of this variant, and that's going to be a problem. John Campobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza is the former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister. Fightback's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. As the economy continues to reopen here in Ontario and COVID-related restrictions ease, are you ready to physically return to the workplace or would you rather continue working from home for health and safety or reasons of convenience? And what about the legalities of returning to in-person work? Joining us for this relevant discussion at this point in the pandemic, Toronto employment and labor lawyer Puneet Tiwari and Dr. Steve Jordans. Professor of Psychology at U of T Scarborough. I think for a lot of people, I've, I've talked about this before, the reemergence I think will initially be a little stressful, but that, that stress will dissipate pretty, pretty quickly. Um, we're, we're really creatures of habit, and it won't take us long if we go back to our old routine for it just to feel like a warm, fuzzy blanket. So on, on the anxiety level, I think, yeah, initially a little bit, but you know, that that would go away pretty quick. But I think a lot of people have, have sort of found other benefits towards um, staying and working at home. And that's what they're going to miss, I think. It's interesting that this has been such a positive side effect of the pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, for, for many, it has. Although, you know, I worry a little bit. We, we live in a world where social anxiety is very strong, and it always was. You know, none of us love those networking events where we have to go and meet people we don't know and interact. Um, it's always a, a stressful kind of thing for humans to do. But this generation has grown up with social media, which has allowed them to have very shallow seeming social interactions. So they feel like they're interacting with a lot of people, but they're never interacting very deeply. You know, I've noticed even coming to office hours, students find it really intimidating to sit face-to-face across from a human being and have a real-time conversation uh, at some sort. And so this is a world that's already a little social anxious, and I'm I'm worried that this has allowed a lot of people to say, ah, this is the way I want to live, you know, not having to interact with a bunch of other strangers. But, but there's dangers in losing that. Let's talk a little bit about the legalities, Puneet. Em- employers, do they have the legal right to say, okay, um, you need, now need to return to the office or, or we want you to stay home? I mean, even for that matter. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a very simple answer, and it's yes. And Dr. Jordan, uh, you know, touched that on that a little bit, but absolutely, when when we all signed our employment contract, 
pre-pandemic, um, you know, unless working from home was already part of that contract, you had agreed to go into the office as required and, uh, you know, let's say a standard nine to five. Um, now, just because the pandemic has happened, now that it's ending, that doesn't give you a permanent right to stay at home. If your employer would like you uh, to return to the office, you have to return to the office. Now, one thing that has popped up in, a, in the employment law field is that uh, now that employees are demanding to either have that full flexibility or stay at home permanently, uh, it gives employers the opportunity to perhaps renegotiate an employment contract, making uh, giving them that right, but in exchange, uh, they would like something back. And that could be either a reduction uh, in salary, which is probably rare, but perhaps more sturdy clauses in terms of termination or, or whatnot. Dr. Jordans, your final thoughts on the transition from working at home to working in person. I implied earlier that for most of us, transitioning will not be such a big deal and it'll happen pretty quickly. There's one important caveat, though. There are some people for whom this has been an existential threat. You know, maybe they have compromised health or maybe somebody in their life and in their family and household, you know, could have been killed by the virus. And for those people who've lived in real fear, not annoyance, not whatever most of us have felt, but real true fear, that can leave a real psychological scar. That's the kind of thing that can produce PTSD and such. And so employers should be aware that while it's perfectly reasonable to, to generally ask their employers to come back or their employees to come back, there may be some cases where they, they need to be sensitive. They need to understand that this person has been through an extremely traumatic time and, and they should be handled a little differently than the rank and file all of us who have just found this annoying. Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at U of T Scarborough and Toronto employment and labor lawyer, Puneet Tiwari. I'm Bob Komsik, and this is Zuma Radio's best to fight back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here's some of the best calls of the past week. Edward in Toronto called about leadership of the federal parties ahead of a likely national election. You know, if one has an opportunity to secure a majority, that's one thing. But in light of the numbers uh, with respect to the the support of party politics versus the actual, um, I suppose, leaders, this discrepancy is something I've actually had to grapple with for many, many years as a voter. Um, I personally, you know, sometimes when I don't see that confidence in the leadership, I uh, unfortunately, I scratch and spoil my ballot. You know, I don't feel like I'm able to swing either way. Ultimately, the question here is, are we really moving in a direction where possibly party politics might be holding back from us making those decisions to bring the leadership we need in the country versus the actual like party and the solidarity around specific policies? So are we moving towards a direction where really the parties themselves may, you know, have to choose differently? We may have to choose leaders based on, you know, they're, whether they're a fit for Canada versus a fit for the party. Jeff in Port Perry called about party politics. 
Trudeau has the 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 ear of the media in the sense that he's on the air virtually every day speaking about COVID. So we hear him. Uh, unfortunately, we don't hear much from Aaron. The media doesn't give him much attention. And I think those are some serious problems. Public itself, to me, is really uninformed. So most people that I talk to seem to use social media as their only an absolute source of information. And they're quite happy to take one sentence and form an opinion. Whereas if you read some of the editorial pieces or some of the background pieces and challenge them a little bit, I think people would have a better understanding of what all the parties are about, um, you know, who's really working for us and who's working for themselves. Ross in Richmond Hill doesn't understand the controversy around mandating COVID vaccines for healthcare workers. I work in a hospital uh, north of Toronto, the GTA area. I have no problem with, with I've had two shots. I have no problem. I don't know what the problem is, is, People are making this into a, a, a big issue. Just curious, in your conversations with colleagues, are, is your view and what you're doing the majority, or are you in a minority? No, a majority of us are getting are gotten shots, but uh, my take on it, I, I think uh, we should all be uh, vaccinated and uh, even people who haven't, are not in the hospital, they should, people, my rights, you know, what about, what about other people's rights? My rights for, I don't want to get infected. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, uh, take, they're, it's all, it's all wrong, I'm saying. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Rachel in Brampton on school vaccines. I am livid. I'm really livid because I have my I kept my son for a year uh, online, and then I finally fully have him vaccinated fully, ready to go to school, and they're not mandating the vaccine. What are they thinking? I mean, he's a special needs child, and work closely with the teachers teaching assistant, he can get a teacher or a PA not vaccinated. It's ridiculous. Like, I mean, I'm, t- I'm telling you, my blood is boiling. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.